Alleluia. Father, this day as we explore the relationship between your revelation and your grace, I pray that just as in the days of old, when the heavens were opened by way of vision or dream or spirit-inspired speaking, as to record the scriptures, so as the word is proclaimed and read by we your people this day, may it produce grace for us to be transformed into your image, equipped for the call, drawn to the gospel in the first place, if there are any yet unregenerate who fellowship among us. We pray, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, that we would see Christ, that we would behold him in his truth, in his gospel, in his promises, and in his power, and in the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Furthermore, as we fellowship at your table, remind us of the privilege of reconciliation with the God of the universe, with the Lord of all. Table fellowship with the one who made us in the first place, who we transgressed and our treason against his name. Yet we, Lord, through the cost of his son's blood, have been drawn back to fellowship with him. And so today, as we sit down, as it were, at table fellowship with you, I pray that our hearts would sing with reverence and with overwhelming joy at the great privilege of relationship with the God of heaven and earth through his Son and God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, crucified on our behalf. And may the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, emphasize all these things to us and write them on the tables of our heart as we embrace your means of grace this morning, even this service, the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Today, the first Sunday of the month, is our Communion Sunday. And we have been studying the book of 2 Peter to accompany uh, our Lord's Table gathering each month. We've reached the end of uh, the book, and as is my tradition through the years, we're closing 2 Peter with an overview message to take in the whole book, at least as much as we can, by way of central theme. Today, the title of this morning's message is Knowledge and Grace. My submission to you today is that Peter draws out the connection. He explores the relationship. He proclaims how those two things go together, the knowledge of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. The aim today, to, this morning in preaching, therefore, is to expound the relationship of knowledge and grace in 2 Peter as a central theme. We'll see this theme in the opening verse, verses and the closing verses as well. And then, Lord willing, by way of four examples in between of the connection between the knowledge of the gospel and the grace that is granted. With that introduction, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? We'll open with a few scriptures at the beginning and close with a few at the end of this great book and epistle, 2 Peter. Here is the word of God, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious 
and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18, the book closes, quote, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. This is the Word of God. So, I don't know if you gathered from those two references in partial intent for Peter as he writes to draw the connection between the grace of God that is available to us, grace provided, if you will, and based upon or through, there's a connection between that and the knowledge revealed in the gospel. The urgency of Peter's second letter, as you read it in context, it has a sort of uh, imminence to it, a sort of emergency sense almost. And this is due to two factors that we've learned in the context. First of all, Peter is compelled to write with urgency because his own death is approaching. Verse 12 of chapter 1, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 14, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Important last words from the apostle. He's writing with urgency because he will soon die. Second reason he writes with urgency is that there is false teaching and false prophets among the brethren. Among the early church, there are those who sought to distort the truth of the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. Other claims and twisted knowledge would not lead to the grace to walk in a manner worthy of our call, as Paul would uh, echo in another place, but instead would distort and destroy the fundamental unity and the fruit of the gospel moving forward in the distant lands like Asia Minor, the audience to whom he writes. So the second motivating factor then is the presence of false teachers among the early church. Peter's primary for reasons for writing are illuminated even further when we compare this, his second letter, with his first epistle, which we've covered in the past, 1 Peter. So in that book, Peter writes to churches in Asia Minor as well, who are just getting their foothold in the gospel and outline pagan lands and regions. In his first letter, the nature of the threat to the church that Peter primarily addresses is persecution, enemies from the outside. The physical risk to life and limb that is sometimes required of standing for the truth. He exhorts the church, if you will, on survival tactics, especially spiritually, given the tyranny of Rome, the inhospitable culture and nation in which the gospel was going forth. Meanwhile, his second epistle primarily addresses the theological corruption among popular teachers and teachings of the day. So if 1 Peter addresses enemies without, 2 Peter addresses enemies within. Two types of enemies, persecution and perversion of the truth. So they go together well and, with, and taken as a pair. I suggest that these epistles are a good, comprehensive, equipping tool for us to stand even in our day. So these enemies warrant different responses. Whereas Peter emphasizes 
in his first epistle, that patient endurance is a primary weapon in facing persecution. In the second letter, he has absolutely zero tolerance for false teachers. How do you face persecution? Primarily, patient endurance. How do you face false teachers? Zero tolerance. How easy is it, here's an application for us, these big picture themes, from these big picture themes, how easy is it for us as the modern church to invert those two responses, to get it switched around? I suggest too often Christians, believers, churches, tolerate or entertain doctrinal corruption. It's not that important to us. Meanwhile, in the pampered West and the easy life that we enjoy and the comfort that we've grown addicted to, we often cannot bear the thought of physical hardship or persecution. No tolerance for persecution, but entertaining error. Peter's response is exactly the opposite. Patient endurance under persecution and do not tolerate error. Uh, Peter echoes Paul's warning in this regard. Do you remember Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians 10? I forget, or 2 Corinthians uh, that the nature of the enemies that we face, the most dangerous foes are not physical, but that rather they are ideas, claims, and idolatrous philosophies, which seek to exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. And this is so important because without clinging to the true knowledge of the gospel, the concurrent or the fruit of the grace that attends it will not attend our way. So fighting for the true knowledge of the gospel will give us the means to stand. This is a relationship between knowledge and grace. Heretical knowledge claims with the true, or uh, Peter fights the heretical knowledge claims of the false teachers with the true and superior knowledge of God's self-revelation in the gospel. The way the whole Bible, the whole testimony of Scripture, and Jesus revealed as the Messiah by the New Testament witness and the apostles proclaim what they disclose, what they proclaim about the Lord. Biblically grounded knowledge is, ne- is a necessary weapon. It was then and is now. And then it was a necessary weapon to destroy early Gnostic teachings. Gnostic actually means knowledge, but it's knowledge by other means. And wicked and competing and twisted sources of understanding, influence, and what people considered profound. But biblically grounded knowledge, it's knowledge versus knowledge, was actually the weapon to destroy the Gnostic teachings and any other perverted alternative to what God has spoken. Any other perverted alternative to the Word of God, rightly divided, correctly understood. The temptation of false knowledge, we should remind ourselves, is as old as original sin. What convinced Eve to eat of the fruit, the tree of the what? Knowledge of good and evil. It was the temptation, the false promise by Satan to be like God. These perverted claims to false knowledge, the temptation of false knowledge, is old as the garden. It contains this promise from Satan of godlike powers in exchange for transgressing his word, perverting his truth, violating his law. And this is a temptation that yet remains today. How do we recognize it and how do we fight it? Well, Peter equips us in that regard through both his letters especially in the second, Peter insists that a church grounded in the truth of the gospel will be fortified to resist these influences which reappear in every age. Do you know the gospel? How much of the gospel must you know to stand? Not a lot, but you have to have a firm and confident conviction 
and at least the very basics. And then you will be able to stand. For Peter and all the New, uh, and all the New Testament writers, we must remember this as well, that knowledge of the gospel is more than just a mental understanding. It's more than just an intellectual assent. And you can write this down, or if you have a copy of notes in the back, this is underlined. What is effectual knowledge in the context of Peter's words? Well, knowledge that has the power to equip the church to stand against false teaching, effectual knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, involves a realization of a much deeper level where faith evidences true heart transformation. So it's a knowledge of what the Bible teaches, and it's a love of the one who has taught us, and it's a conviction that evidences in a fruit, in the fruit of a changed life. So it's what is spoken, a love for the one who has declared it, and a change in one's life as a result. That would be a realization of knowledge such that Peter intends to convey. This kind of knowledge is a means of grace, if you will, then, which equips the church to stand against their enemies, whether they come wielding persecution or heresy. True heartfelt knowledge of the true gospel will equip you to stand against the enemies whether they, of the church, whether they come wielding persecution, 1 Peter, or heresy, primary focus of 2 Peter. So let us look then at an overview of 2 Peter in this regard. And we'll cover more territory than we normally do, and this will be kind of a higher view, if you will, from, from kind of thousands of feet rather than a particular uh, section of Scripture which we'll explore in depth. So with that caveat, let me give you a heading. Expounding the knowledge, grace connection, Peter writes to the following. So Peter, expounding the knowledge, grace connection, writes to, number one, those with faith of equal standing. This is a profound declaration. Peter understands that those who are the audience of his letter, whose hearts have been changed, they share a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Secondly, he writes to those who have received the apostolic witness. Later in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, Peter recounts what he has seen and what the Word of God declares to those who would behold that witness, his hearers. Number three, he writes to those who... Uh, to those true to the master that bought them, who remain true to Jesus, their master that bought them. And finally, he writes to those in chapter 3, 1 through 12, of sincere mind, true believers. So first of all, expounding the knowledge, grace, connection, Peter writes to those with faith of equal standing. Chapter 1, verse 1. The author, Peter, the apostle, introduces himself, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then note with particular attention a theme statement I submit, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How will grace and peace be multiplied to the church? Well, it will come by way of something, by means of something. It will be in the knowledge of God. So you see there the relationship between knowledge and grace. Just a little clue for your own Bible study. If you're looking for major themes, author's intent, kind of big picture motif as we covered that term last week, a helpful hint is to look at the beginning of a book and at the end. And if we apply that 
a study method to 2 Peter, we find similarities. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So you see, again, Peter expounds the relationship, references it twice, many times in fact. He, exp- he gives examples in the uh, ensuing pages in between, but at the beginning and at the end, he says that there is a connection. He proclaims that there's a connection between grace and knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as he has appealed to the Lord on behalf of the church in 1 verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he's writing to those of faith of equal standing, and now he's going to make a knowledge statement, if you will. So under each one of my main points, we have two subheadings, knowledge revealed and grace provided. And so there's four examples that I would like to highlight in the scripture of examples of knowledge of the gospel revealed, as Peter writes, and secondly, grace provided as a result. So to those who share faith of equal standing, where do they find assurance? Well, verse 3 says this, His, of course Jesus, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, again, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world from, uh, because of sinful desire. So what is the knowledge revealed right from the beginning of Peter's epistle? Well, in summary, perhaps we could say it's the divine power and promises of the gospel. Knowledge of the divine power of the gospel and its promises will yield grace to stand against enemies of the church within and without, and especially in the application of this book, claims to the contrary, heresies and false teaching. So what is the divine power to which Peter refers? Well, it really is incredible. It's power to save, power to transform. In verse 2, he says, Those who have received this power have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is to say, the power of Jesus' righteousness has transformed us and granted us faith of equal standing with other believers. In the broader teaching of Scripture, we understand this to mean that a perfect sacrifice, perfectly righteous, that righteousness is imputed or granted or counted ours in the great exchange of the gospel. The power of Jesus' perfect sinless life, if that could be credited to our account, then that would be transforming. Our life would be entirely remade. We would be a different person. And that is, in fact, the way the Bible describes being a Christian, being born again. To be born again, in part, is to receive the power of Christ's righteousness credited to your account when you confess and lay, as it were, your sins upon His shoulders to receive their due punishment on Calvary, that which the table pictures, and receive instead the declaration of justified in the name by the work and righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. This is a kind of knowledge when revealed and understood at that heart level, and the kind of love and appreciation and confidence that is connected to it, when the true believer resonates with this kind of div- uh, divine power 
that grants to us grace to stand. There's another power, there's more references to power as well, too many to count, but uh, throughout the course of the book, we're just highlighting a few examples at the beginning. Another one would be what Paul calls in Christ, and Peter refers to as becoming partakers of the divine nature, verse 4. By which, so the knowledge of him, so by the means of the gospel, and the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ revealed in the same, by these he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So the work of Jesus Christ is so closely connected to us that we share in it. Recently we had a baptism here at Providence, and that idea of being partakers in the divine nature or being in Christ or so closely associated with our covenant head was emphasized and pictured in that symbol, baptism. To be baptized is to acknowledge that when Jesus was buried, I became a partaker in his death, and so my sins were buried with him, and my old man was buried with him. And when Jesus was raised, so I became a partaker in his resurrection life. And so I was raised from the death of sin. I have been born again. I am a new creation. And so I will be raised again one day when the trumpet sounds and the second resurrection calls forth from the dead everyone who is in their covenant head in Jesus Christ. This is real power. This is the knowledge revealed, the power and promises of the gospel that grant us grace to stand. Promises. What does Peter mean when he says power and promises? Well, he references promises later, and they reach their kind of manifold fullness in chapter 3, verse 13, which says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Think about it, saints. No matter how difficult persecution gets, or no no matter how troubling uh, the false teachers might work to twist the gospel, if there is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness exclusively dwells, no perversion of that perfect covenantal truth will ever be allowed or tolerated anymore. And all shred and remnant of sin and its effects is entirely atoned for and redeemed in the full manifest reality of the new world one day. This grants us grace to stand. It's much easier to be hopeful and patient when we know that our happy ever after, if you will, is not a fairy tale tag on the end of a children's book, but it's the secured and assured promise from a resurrected Savior who proved to us that he can remake the world when he defeated death by rising on the third day. This is the knowledge revealed that grants us grace. So what is the grace provided? for the divine power and promises of the gospel. What grace does that knowledge provide? Well, Peter says, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 3 again, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if you struggle in any way with doubt, discouragement, anxiety, if you struggle with besetting sins or the weight of your humanity clinging to you like so much dust that you wish you could just wash off, There are times when I'm sure you doubt that God has sufficiently provided you all things pertaining to life and godliness. But He has. But He has also ordained that this come by way of process. We call that sanctification. 
What are these all things that God has provided? Well, Peter expounds further in the text by saying in verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. These are those faith supplements, those means of life and godliness that he provides by virtue of our assurance through the knowledge revealed. They include things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And as we grow in them, so does our insurance. Verse 10, Brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So how do we stand in a day full of error? How do we stand in a day fraught with persecution? By clinging to the knowledge revealed of the power and promises of the gospel. The promise of a new heaven and earth one day, and the promise that God is making us fit for that kingdom through justification and sanctification. And this is secured and assured on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The grace provided all things pertaining to life and godliness. For example, these faith supplements we read in chapter 1. So there we see in this first chapter, the first half, Peter expounding the relationship between knowledge and grace, the connection between the two, as he writes to those with faith of equal standing. But another reference to his audience could be Peter writing to those who have received the apostolic witness. Verse 16 picks up, expounding further this relationship, again, between knowledge and grace. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So kids, I'm going to keep reading, and I want you to tell me, see if you can recall, or see if you can figure out the event that Peter is talking about. So something happened. Peter saw something amazing. You guys tell us what that is as we continue to read. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So kids, did you catch it? Peter is talking about something he experienced on a mountain where he heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Do you guys know when that happened? Kids, do you recall? We call that event the Mount of... An adult can fill in if we're... Transfiguration, thank you. The Mount of Transfiguration. So, with those who had received Peter's letter, who is the author? He is the one who saw with his own two eyes, with two other disciples, one of the most amazing revelations in all of human history. The window of revelation was open, just a crack, if you will, for the disciples in that moment to behold the pre-incarnate glory of the divine Son of God that he always shared before it was veiled for a time in the incarnation when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And now we receive the witness of that testimony as we read these scriptures, even as these scriptures were treasured by that early church in Asia Minor. To whom is Peter writing? Those whose hearts resonate with the fact that I'm listening to an eyewitness of the one who beheld the second person of the Trinity in all his resplendent glory. The one who in that revelation demonstrated that he was far more than just a human being of ordinary means, far more than just a carpenter, far more than just a sinner, according to the first Adam. 
This was the Messiah promise of the second Adam, the only one perfect, sinless, fully man and fully God in his incarnation who could satisfy the terms of atonement. What is Peter revealing in this? What is the knowledge revealed? It's the power and coming of Christ. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. You know, there's like the Gnostics taught then, the false teachers of every age come up with alternate theories, things they think are deep and profound, explanations spiritually and otherwise for the nature and order of things. All these are to be rejected. We made known to you instead, Peter says, verse 16, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By, <clears throat> but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This power and coming was revealed by way of eyewitness majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there's a second source of revelation as well. Not only the testimony of those who were there and were able to see with their own eyes this glorious, miraculous event, but 19 continues. Peter says, if that's not enough in so many words, I have something even better. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place <clears throat> until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever produced, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the power and coming of Jesus Christ revealed, testified to in two ways. Number one, eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter from the Mount of Transfiguration. Number two, the prophetic word. This would be all of the Holy Scriptures. And Peter says the second category, if it could be said, in some ways is more profound than the first. This is the knowledge revealed. If you trust the written word and the witness of the, of the first generation of anointed apostles from Jesus Christ as true, and giving you the record of their uh, Messiah and your master as well, Jesus Christ, and what he has done and why, this will great, give you grace, great power to stand. Receiving the apostolic witness and the testimony of the scriptures of the power and coming of Jesus Christ, what grace will be provided? Well, right in context here, discerning false teachers. So on the one hand, you have Peter pointing to a power outside himself. On the other hand, you have false teachers. And you can discern the difference when you understand the source and authority and the standard by which to judge the rest. So how do we know false teaching from the legit, from the profound, from the scriptures? Well, it's someone's own interpretation. It's either the scriptures on their own terms, or it's the eyewitness testimony corroborated by multiple apostles who saw the glorious miracles and recorded the teaching and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explain the gospel. It's either that or it's someone's own interpretation. And you will be equipped with grace to know the difference if you love the first. If you love the witness of the apostles, the works of Jesus Christ testified to in Scripture, and the Word of God which prophesied these things from ages past. Also the will of man. No prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Someone's own interpretation... And the will of man, those are the two motive forces, if you will, that basically underlie or undergird or ground all claims to the contrary, all false teaching and all heresy. Somewhere underneath them all is not God speaking and his authority simply echoed by his ambassadors and by those 
who echo the apostolic witness, but somewhere underneath all scripture twisting and all heresy is a false motive, one to exalt oneself, one's own interpretation, or the will of man exalted over the will of God. It's as basic as original sin, it's as systemic as the fall, and it is with us today. How do we stand? How do we have grace to discern between the two? Well, have you received that apostolic witness? Has your, does your heart resonate with the glories of Christ revealed in the Scripture? Have you grown to understand the connection between those revelations and what the Old Testament prophesied of Him? If so, in this receiving of the apostolic witness and this receiving of the whole counsel of God's Word, you are growing in your ability to discern truth from error. Number three, so this is the third example that Peter expounds of the relationship between knowledge and grace. And for this one, he writes to those who are true to the master who bought them. Uh, verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, and their condemnation, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So I'm just negating that phrase, denying the master who bought them, to illustrate the opposite, those to whom Peter, the sincere hearers whom Peter writes, they're those who do not deny, they are true to the master who bought them. How do they remain true? How do they remain unpersuaded by those who deny Jesus, even though on the face of it, they seem to have persuasive arguments. Well, once again, Peter reveals the knowledge that allows us to stand, and he begins in verse 4. This is the knowledge revealed. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So what's that a reference to? It's a reference to, if you will, cosmic reckoning in the heavenlies a day of judgment for the fallen angels, where those who sinned against the authority and sovereignty and holiness of God in the heavenly realms received their just due and were cast out. And on that day, on that great day, thus forever remained the difference between the elect angels, those who obey the commandment of the Lord and serve Him as His ministers of glory, and the devil, Satan, and all his demonic minions that are the <clears throat> that are the inspiration behind all this deception that plagues the church then and now. So Peter is telling us, or he's recalling, he's revealing knowledge that will help us to understand and to stand. If, uh, secondly, if he did not spare, speaking of the Lord, the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, so that's reference number two, first, elect versus reprobate angels, secondly, Ancient world versus Noah, upon whom God showed his favor and saved. And here's a third reference. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, as he condemned them to distinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then here's, so that's three reckoning or judgment references. Then here's a fourth salvation reference. In spite of himself and in spite of his surroundings, this would be a lot in verse 7. And if he, of course, referring to the Lord again, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, 
He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And then his argument is going to complete here in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So knowledge revealed to those who, are, who have ears to hear, for those who are true to the master who brought them, would be the works of God in judgment and salvation through the ages. This is the knowledge when cl uh, clung to by your heart and adhered to in your conviction and remembered in your meditations will grant you grace to stand in a day when your faith is challenged and threatened. By way of application, let me ask this question. How popular is the message of God's judgments these days? What would most people rather hear? Which are they more ticklish for, if you will, in their ears? A loving God who loves them just as they are? A loving God in their image, as I often say, Jesus has been reduced in our culture to a mascot of anybody's worldview. Jesus is just my projection of who I prefer God to be in the minds of many people. Is that more popular? Or the message of judgment worthy of homosexuals who are unrepentant and having their way with their neighbors in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm telling you, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the pride parade of their depravity was interrupted from, by fire from heaven. Do we have pride parades in this nation? Do our pulpits ring with the declaration that such activity, celebrating depravity and unashamed you know, celebrations and so forth, is worthy of the judgments of God? Well, if you don't realize that, then you could be easily deceived and overtaken and caught up in the virtue of the moment, which isn't the righteousness of Christ, but which is the sinfulness that is justified by the day and age in which we live. And you could lose the grounding of your once confessed faith and prove apostate. These are the areas which get pressed in our culture today. But isn't it something that these references that Peter speaks to equip and prepare us to stand where the battle rages? So don't forget the judgments of God. And there's also the salvation of God. But that comes at the cost of the blood of his son. And that comes not because God arbitrarily looks over the punishment that sin deserved, but only because the sins of Lot were paid for by the death of another yet to come, Jesus Christ. All sin and transgression of God's holy law, in order for him to be just, must receive its due compensation, its debt, its punishment. And that's what the judgments of God through history teach. If you don't repent, ask Noah, why in the world does this now, you know, marine architect build this colossal structure? Why are you doing this, Noah? <clears throat> Noah, as a herald of righteousness, tells you exactly the reason. Look around you, look at your neighbors. God has spoken. Perhaps you recall the first man, Adam, sinned. But God promised that through the seed of the woman, there would come one who would crush the serpent's head. But you have joined the serpent. You, don't, you reject the message of hope in the coming Messiah. If you want to be saved, turn from your sins. Help me build this ark and join me because the judgments of God are coming. Did anyone listen? Only eight did, his family. Everyone else, what did they receive? The judgment due their sin in that great flood. Peter references this twice. Why? Because it is a necessary revelation. These are the things. This is the knowledge revealed of the works of God 
that provides for us what we've called a reckoning perspective. And that, I submit, would be the grace provided. We need a reckoning perspective in order to proceed with confident endurance for several reasons. One is so we don't become tempted to call good what God hates. And the second is so we don't become discouraged and think too little of the power of God because of such evil around us. It took a long time for the ark to be built. We surmised some 120 years, and meanwhile, the depravity and debauchery of Noah's neighbors just raged on. Would that not be difficult as a godly and righteous man to live in that kind of context and cultural surroundings? You bet it would be. And so it is for us today to some degree. We might be tempted to ask, as Peter later talks more about, oh, where is his coming? It's delayed for so long. Well, there's a purpose for God's patience. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In the meantime, that reckoning perspective that God has judged sin in the past and will in the future allows us to proceed with confidence and endurance when wickedness seems to be abounding in our day and age. <clears throat> if we are true to the master who, bought, who buys us, who has bought us, then we will hear of the works of God in judgment and salvation. That knowledge revealed through the scriptures that Peter references and more. And that will give us a reckoning perspective, confidence to stand with endurance. Final point this morning, again, illustrating the connection between knowledge and grace. Peter writes to those of sincere mind in chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Listen as he, the final chapter of Peter's second epistle begins to unfold. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter addresses us, if you're in Christ today, as one of sincere mind and as a beloved, a family member, if you will, within the body of Christ. Verse 2, he says, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact. So again, this is the knowledge that the cynic, the skeptic in our modern day is blind to. They overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Creation ex nihilo, Latin, out of nothing by the very word of God in the first place, is an essential and necessary doctrine for you to remain undeceived, counted among the beloved, and remain with the mind of Christ in sincerity and to stand in a day when your faith is challenged by twisting or by persecution. He says, furthermore, and that by means of these, verse 6, that would be water, of course, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's Noah again. God used that water as an instrument of judgment, the condemnation of the sins of the day. He says, furthermore, in verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So do you get a, a sense of the knowledge revealed to those of sincere mind, that will provide for them grace to stand. It is, in Peter's words, and so many words I would suggest, the unified testimony of God's word. Peter says, pay heed to the word of God revealed by prophet, by Messiah, and by apostle. Another way of referencing the whole counsel of the scriptures. 
I'm stirring you up by a sincere reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Everything that was written before Jesus came, including and especially as he references it in context, Isaiah, who proclaimed the day of the Lord in chapter 2 and proclaimed the new heavens and new earth at the end of his oracle, chapter 65 and 66. Peter refers to these things as the knowledge revealed that will grant grace for the church at the time. Not only, though, the prophets, but the commandments of the Lord. That would be the teaching of Christ himself. And then he says, through your apostles. Prophets, Christ, and apostles could be a summary reference to all the sources, the Spirit-inspired ministers and authors of Scripture. Peter appeals in this way to those of sincere mind to heed the unified testimony of the Word of God that comes to us by way of prophet, by Jesus himself and his apostles. It's a huge purpose for him in writing. And he says this very clearly. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Perhaps you recall similar language in 1 Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. There he says, basically, he's going to devote his final days and last words to this same goal. I can find it. Therefore, I intend always, verse 12, chapter 1, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. This, by the way, is a great mission, great vision for a minister of the gospel such as myself. Recently, I met with a group of, um, we have a ministerial group that meets to support one another and pray. We call ourselves common slaves. And we were speaking, and there's a couple of ministers who were speaking about, has, in spite of how many times they've gone, gone over the gospel and sound uh, teaching of scripture for 15 some years, there are so many in their congregations that don't seem to get it, and you could kind of sense a weariness in their voice. But when we turn to the scriptures to give ourselves, and parents, you can relate to this too, how many times have you instructed your children, you cannot do this, God's word says that, this, you have just shown your sin by disobeying me, I'm an agent of God's authority and giving you his word to raise you up in the knowledge of him, and when you break my rules, you disobey the Lord, and the Bible commands that you honor your father and mother, and here you are for the umpteenth time, telling your four-year-old, your five-year-old the truth, that they are a sinner, and God's word says they must repent, and you do it through your discipline. We can go weary in this task. But for those of us who are called to keep our focus as parents, as ministers of the gospel in whatever capacity, it's important to take a cue from Peter, to look at the great privilege and responsibility to remind over and over again. It is God's grace for forgetful humans, that he would remind us over and over again. We are commanded in the scriptures to come to his table with frequency because we are easily prone to forget. But this forgetful intermediate state in which we live, don't worry, those of you of sincere mind who embrace God's means, one day you will know him, as the scriptures say, as you have been known. And this kind of plotting and working out your salvation with fear and trembling and difficulty will give way to the glories of the new heaven and new earth. 
Suffice it to say, in the meantime, may take great advantage of the grace that He provides that comes by way of knowledge revealed, the testimony of His Scriptures. And what is the grace promised or the grace provided then? Well, we have promises. And, this, and here again, we can turn uh, to what Peter says we have to look forward to in chapter 3, verse 13. According to this promise, to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter then closes with more application by asking this question, verse 11. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. So, if we know that God has spoken, if our sincere minds have been stirred up by the record of His power in history, if we affirm the whole counsel of God from the prophets to Christ to the apostles, what is the grace that is provided for us by these means? Well, grace to stand and grow in holiness and godliness. And to be, as we mentioned in sermons past, stewards of God's patience. Peter tells us why God is waiting so long to return. It's because he is not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. In other words, God is tarrying, he is waiting, he is long-suffering, he is patient in order that the fullness of the elect would come in. He is not satisfied with the number that confess Him yet. There are more yet sincere minds who respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And when we understand this knowledge revealed, then it provides for us grace to steward well the patience of God. Not to throw in the towel and say, things are so bad, I can't believe it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and just recuse ourselves and step back and complacency and wait for the second coming that we think is right around the corner because the latest scripture twister wrote a book, 2022 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 2022 or something like that. No, we are called to be about the Father's business and to have the right perspective. If God is so patient and steadfast to wait this long, even though this world deserves it, how can I be a good steward of his patience? Grow in holiness, grow in godliness, grow in our call of evangelism, share the gospel, be at peace, verse 14. Peace with each other, ultimate, most importantly, peace with God, peace with the circumstances in which he's placed us. And then furthermore, as he continues, there's a promise that on these grounds we will not lose our stability. Knowing this beforehand, take care, verse 17, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, again, addressing that primary threat to the church, the heresy of the day, and lose your own stability, but... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. You'll remain stable, enduring, and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. If you recognize this connection between the knowledge revealed in Scripture and the grace thereby to stand. So that is a summary and overview of some of the main ideas of 2 Peter. And I'm compelled to ask this question in closing. Perhaps this concept applies to communion as well. We get asked the question this way, what is the knowledge of God revealed in communion? And thereby, what is the grace that it provides? So kids, I'll need your help in answering this one. 
Remind us, young people, what does the bread represent? What does it remind us of? Say it loudly. Jesus' body is correct. And now remind us, what does the cup remind us of at the Lord's table? Jesus' blood, that is correct. So at the Lord's table, the cost of our salvation is displayed. It is revealed. And it's interesting. We don't have too many of these means, that is, ordinances, that proclaim the gospel outside of the written word. But in a very real sense, in this object lesson or in this dramatized picture, we have the word of God revealed, if you will. We have the reminder that the body of Jesus was broken because our sins needed punishment, and the blood of Jesus was spilled because our sins needed atonement. They might be washed away. This is the knowledge of God revealed at the Lord's table. The scriptures say that at the Lord's table we remember that knowledge is revealed to us yet again in this uh, act of receiving communion. And what else is revealed to us in that is that we have free access to relationship and table fellowship with the Lord, as we often say, that flaming sword that once guarded Eden has been taken on the side of Jesus Christ, and thus through his wounds, so to speak, we have access to the rela- our relationship with the Father once again. But if you're not a believer in this room, do not partake in this table. There yet stands before you a flaming sword of God's judgment, which will come upon you on the final day. And so it's a serious matter. But if you trust what is revealed at this table, Jesus Christ was crushed for your iniquities. By his stripes, your sins were atoned for on his back. And by the wounds in his hands and feet, the payment due your sin was taken by another, the perfect lamb, son of God, substitute, when the table's open to you. This is what is revealed. This is the, excuse me, the knowledge of God revealed at his table. And, and then following that, what is the grace? Well, at the Lord's table, we realize once again grace to remember that our souls would be conformed to this reality and to proclaim, to share with others the truth of the gospel, that he might use our testimony of a heart and life transformed to save but one more, should he be gracious. So this is what we can remember today and how we can apply Peter's words. And I submit to you that this concept remains. The knowledge of God revealed in Scripture is there as a means of grace. And this knowledge is not just a mental ascent, but it's a much deeper level of heart connection to the truth of the gospel. It bears fruit of your own transformation. And as the Lord uses these means to further ground you in your faith, you will have grace to stand, to remember, to proclaim, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the message of hope in the gospel that is proclaimed to us in so many glorious ways. Through the pages of Scripture, prophesied, fulfilled, and applied, and interpreted, and through your table, which proclaims to us, even at this meal today, the glorious hope of salvation in Christ's shed blood and broken body. I pray for everyone as they approach the table that they would do so, those who are believers in this room, that they would do so in the right heart and that you would use this time to instill within them grace to stand in a day such as ours, not just to remain, but to take ground for the kingdom, to advance the cause of Christ, that you may find us faithful about the Father's business when you call us home or when you return. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.